Hi everyone, Amrit here. So as you know, myself and the team work hard to bring you an all new episode of Startup Dads every week without fail. But over the Christmas period, we're taking some time off to enjoy with family. The show is Startup Dads after all. So for the next couple of weeks, we're going to replay some of our favorite episodes for all of you. For any new listeners, this is a golden opportunity to discover some Startup Dads classics. And for our regulars, it's a chance to get some of our guests' knowledge bombs internalized. This episode with Rob Walling, the epic entrepreneur and master of bootstrapping, first ran in April 2021. Enjoy. Welcome to Startup Dads, a podcast about the highs and lows of building a business and raising a family at the same time. For more information about the topics we cover on the podcast and other Startup Dads related content, you can follow us on Twitter at Startup Dads Pod. I'm Amrit, co-founder of Hyper Exponential, a tech startup that I co-founded in 2017. It's grown from a two-person team working out of my kitchen to a profitable business with several large clients and more than 20 team members across London and Europe. I'm also dad to Evie, my first child, who was born last December. This week on Startup Dads, I've got Rob Walling. Rob, can you introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about what makes you a startup dad? Indeed. Well, the startup part is because for some sick and twisted reason, I uh, moved from becoming a developer to an entrepreneur. And then I did it over and over again. So, I, you know, I like to think that there's a little, little something wrong with us if we continue to start companies because, man, it's, it's been pretty painful. But um, it, it, of course, has its virtues as well. And the dad part is because I'm married and I have three kids, 10, 10, and 14. Brilliant. You touched on something there, which I think really spoke to me, which is there are a huge number of entrepreneurs that are serial entrepreneurs. And it's exactly as you say, why on earth am I doing this? And then, you know, we've got people like you who've done it successfully several times in a row. So can you talk to me a little bit, I suppose, about your motivation about going again? Yeah, this has been a long conversation between my wife and I. And, you know, in the early ones, there were smaller efforts. And I was always like, I have something to prove to myself to do it again and either do it better or do it bigger. And, you know, to go from one small startup that was just making, it was bootstrapped and it was making me 150K a year, $150,000. I could quit my job. It was a great life. And then the next one, it's like, well, I want to do something 10 times bigger than that. You know, it was the aspiration of doing that and proving to myself I could do it, I think. And then that next one was was really hard. And that was where I started telling my wife, you know, I'm not sure I'm ever going to do this again. It was in the midst of that. And she said, yes, you are. You're going to do, you're going to keep doing this, you know? So the interesting thing about entrepreneurs is each of us have our own motivations. Like some of us are motivated maybe by positive things like I want to change the world I want to make more money to help people, you know, and then there's, I think, negatives of like, hey, maybe I hear that voice in my head uh, of my dad always telling me you're not going to be good enough. That wasn't my case, but I know founders who are running from things, you know, who are trying to prove it to themselves. So, yeah, I, I think that's it. And even starting for me after selling my last SaaS app, I knew I was going to do something after that. I felt like I learned what I needed to learn from that phase and from that type of business. And now I'm you know, running an accelerator and a conference and stuff, it's different, but it's related, right? It, it still allows me to be around interesting people. I find that entrepreneurs are some of the most interesting people to be around. Yeah, it's fantastic. And I think one of the biggest addictions, if you scale a business or startup in any way yourself, is the people you get to meet and the journey you get to go on, right? It's mega motivating. Absolutely. It really is about the people in the end. And that's something I definitely did not realize early on. 
I saw startups as like a way of basically financial freedom. My dad was working class and just dad was an electrician. And it was like, we never had an, as much money as I wanted just to do basic stuff. And so I saw startups as that. But really in the end, it's like, no, it's actually much, much more. It's the people, as you're saying, you know, it's, it's the experience of it too. Yeah, for sure. I don't know about you, but personally, I often find myself rewinding through the things I've done as HX, my business has grown and saying, oh boy, there was a different, easier path. And then playing that forward, what that could have looked like. I suppose talking to someone like you who's done this several times, is that something you find yourself doing and then taking the kind of learnings and using them to boost your next go, so to speak? I definitely have taken learnings and experience from one app to the next to the next. And each one was easier in some ways, but they were harder because I was always doing something more ambitious, you know? So it was the new things that were the hardest rethinking of like, what could I have done differently? I don't tend to do that. I tend to try to make the best decision that I can in the moment. I'm not an impulsive person. And I don't know if you've read Chip and Dan Heath's book. I think it's decisive or decisions or something. They talk about how to make decisions. And then one big piece that I took away from that is just because you make a decision and it turns out bad doesn't mean it was the wrong decision at the time. Oftentimes you're making a decision with incomplete information <laughs> as an entrepreneur and you just have to go with your gut or you have 50% of the data you need and then you have to make a decision. And so so I don't rethink or, or regret, you know, I don't have many regrets in my life, in my professional life, because it was always like, well, I did what I thought was right at the time. I think the only regrets that I have is um, if I make emotional decisions you know, if I don't think I'm through enough. I think there is a common misconception amongst serial entrepreneurs that they've nailed it and they're going to just scale what they've done again and again. And I think your point is that actually every situation is different and you're sure, I'm sure you've got a groove for certain things, right? I'm sure of that. But it's not like it's just about repeating what you did again, right? With an easier formula. That's just, if it were that easy, then everyone would be doing it, I think. Exactly. And we'd all get bored, like founders almost as a rule want to do new and interesting things. And once you do new things, they tend to be hard and scary and you just have to figure them out. You don't have the data to, to do it. I suppose cycling back to kind of your background uh, and your startup dad life. So you've been building businesses and you've had kids for quite a while now. So what are the big realizations, I suppose, that you've had in making that work? I think the, the big piece for me is that going independent with kids gives you amazing flexibility because I, you know, I bootstrapped all my startups. So I think it's different if you raise a lot of money and you do have to manage a big team and hire up and do that. But for me, uh, this was about financial freedom and independence, especially in the early days. And it was amazing having the flexibility that I could work at night or go to all my kids' performances. And it also was kind of crappy that I could work at night because then I worked every night, you know? And I think that was... Um, that's been a, a big learning. And in the early, early days, in the early days when they were babies, it was amazing because you do, you sleep at weird hours and then I would wake up at two in the morning and like do some work. But as it got on, I realized I really do need more structure. You know, two, three, four years in, I had to rein myself in because I found myself almost kind of never stopping working, that I worked every break I had. And that was, why would I bootstrap a company for for personal freedom and flexibility and then work all the time. You know, it just made no sense. So I had to check myself at a certain point. It's so true, isn't it? I think it's one of those things that people don't realize. And I certainly think the world is adapting and coronavirus has catalyzed this to a more asynchronous, flexible world. But it's absolutely not a panacea, right? It's not something that automatically solves all the problems because we benefit in many ways from structure. 
right? And I think the way the world evolved to set us, whatever it used to be, the nine to five, whatever that was, that wasn't entirely without benefit, the structure, right? And I certainly can totally relate, you know, when my daughter was early stages and just sleeping and waking whenever she wanted. I mean, she still does that, but you definitely find yourself going, oh, this is great. You know, I can make this work for me, but very quickly you start working for it, right? Rather than the other way around. Yeah, I think it's an easy trap to fall into. My wife is a She's a clinical psychologist and she works with a lot of entrepreneurs and high functioning executives who are experiencing, whether it's stress or, you know, just trying to, trying to stay sane while, while doing hard work. And there's been more than one study that looks at how entrepreneurs, they do brain scans and they'll show an entrepreneur a picture of their children and then a picture of like their company logo and the same the same things in their brain activate, they actually are like super attached to both of these things. And even if you don't want it to be the reality that maybe you care as much as your company, you know, as you do your kids, and it probably isn't the reality, but there, there's a lot of, of ourselves invested in our kids and there's a lot of ourselves invested in our companies. And it's easy to just default to giving too much of yourself, I think. I remember reading a great article or watching a video. It was by Dustin Moskovitz, who's, I think, the founder of Asana. And he talked about saying, you know, be very careful of thinking that if you start a startup, it's, you're going to be your own boss because you're going to work for everyone in your company, right? You're going to work for all your clients. You're going to work for all your investors and you're going to work for your team more than ever, anyone else. And as you say, you know, if you're bootstrapping and your team is just you, I mean, that doesn't mean that you don't still be working huge amounts and you won't feel the huge amount of pressure for people who depend on you. Uh, and it's definitely the hidden side of things. You know, being your own boss, it's a fascinating thing that cuts both ways in that regard. Yeah, the moment that you hire a team and start to grow. I think gr quick growth, fast growth is that another thing that cuts both ways. It's amazing. Everybody wants it. We're all striving for it. And then when you get it, it's actually really stressful. You have to hire and, and suddenly the business starts taking a lot more from you. Because I've had businesses that have, again, I'll say plateaued businesses, but they were great because I barely worked on them. You know, there was a point where, again, I was making, let's say $150,000 a year and I was working 10, 12 hours a week. I mean, I almost had the four-hour work week. And that was, I did that for almost a year. And it was one of the most relaxed, it was almost like a sabbatical for me, you know, just enough work to keep me busy. And then flipping to the growth stuff, it's like, man, this is exciting and this is fun until it, you know, until it gets stressful. And then you have to figure out how to, how to deal with that and how not to let it pull you away from being present with your, with your family. So do you have any tips, so I suppose, how you manage those boundaries, you know, having done that yourself? Yes, I will say that I'm okay. I'm better at it than I used to be. I still want to get better. I think a big one is I have to start leaving my phone in the other room because I just can't not. And I don't get on Twitter. I, you know, I mean, I do sometimes during the day, but that's not my, I'm not addicted to social media. It's slacks come through pretty consistently because we're all in different time zones. You know, have some, I'm in California, I have someone in Hawaii, so he's still working until it's like, you know, at 9 p.m. my time or something. And then we have, you know, folks in, in the East Coast and even one of our, uh, co my co-founder was in Europe for a month. So it was just all, you know, all over the place. So leaving the phone in the other room. The other one is my wife and I do a, what I call a Sunday huddle, which, well, I say, should say she calls it a Sunday huddle and, and I really like that idea, but she and I get together and we go through our calendars and we look at the whole week to make sure, especially pre-COVID, and we'll have to do this post-COVID, who's driving which child where at which time? Because our kids go to schools where we are in carpools and 
you know, there's like cello lesson and violin lesson and there was dance and there, you know, there's all the activities. Who's gonna be at what place where? And this was even more important when our kids were younger, less about the driving, but who's going to be at the house at this time? Because often I was, I would go out to a, a lunch at this cafe with somebody, you know, with a business partner and she would have four hours in the afternoon, you know, at, at, at doing clinical work. And our, when our kids were younger, someone had to be at the house. That isn't the case anymore. But that's the Sunday huddle is to look out seven days and be like, do I need to move something? And before we did that, we would get to that point 2 p.m. on a Monday and be like, wait, we're both, why are we both walking out the door? We can't be doing that right now, you know? I'm going to 100% steal that. That's just a great idea. And you know, the funny thing is, you said that. I do that with my team. I do that with my team every week. And, you know, your family is a team, right? <laughs> and, you know, you have to work in lockstep to make a, a family work, particularly when, again, it, it speaks to this growth thing, which is one of the motivations for having this podcast, right? Everything is changing. You've got to help them manage that growth. It's, it feels so obvious when you said that, but it's amazing how many people don't do it. So to be honest, that um, approach is in, so Sherry wrote a book. My wife wrote a book. It's called The Entrepreneur's Guide to Keeping Your Shit Together. And we took a bunch of stuff. She and I used to have a podcast together. We took all the learnings, a lot of it around, a lot of it around family. There's some personal mental health and there's doing retreats in there, but there's a good chunk, you know, quarter to a third of that book that is just about managing yourself with your family. Um, so if folks, you know, are interested in, in spending, I don't know, I think the Kindle version's five bucks or something, but um, there there's some pretty tactical things in that book about other approaches we use. That's fantastic. That's fantastic. I think it's a incredibly valuable lesson. You know, managing your energy reserves across all of these different things is just a critical skill. It's one of the things I've learned so much, right? Is the most important thing is for me to keep that level of energy at a point where I, you can give to everyone who needs it. Yeah. Yeah. It's easy to give, so easy to give too much to your work. I've done it I, as someone who, you know, who's a recovering. Um, I, I won't say, what's interesting is I'm not a workaholic because I never worked long hours, but what I would do is I would work, usually my whole career as a bootstrapper, it was like 25 to 35 hours a week. Sometimes I mean, 40 when it was crunch time, you know, and there were once a year, there'd be a few weeks of 60 hour weeks and that was it. And yet in the evening, I would often not shut my brain off. And that's the, that's the difference is I wasn't technically working, but I was kind of not present. And that's something that I have, have really worked on. You, you've actually just touched on something which is so important, which I think is the fact that actually you don't have to be sitting in front of a computer and typing to have your brain at work, right? That's right. And I think the, the challenge with that is when your kids are really young, and you can't talk to them and you're literally just holding them and, and walking around with them until they're, let's say, I don't know, 18 months, two years old, you can be distracted because you're just kind of hanging out with them and, and as long as you're feeding them and stuff. But once they start talking and once they start being around, you kind of have to switch. You, you need to then not be looking at your phone. You need to then not be have your mind you know, off in, a, off in the distance because then you're not interacting with them in a way that I think is, is you know, beneficial for the relationship. So Rob, you know, in the context of trying to keep your brain shut off at the end of the day, do you have any tips for doing that? I do because I've tried so many things that that haven't worked. I think there's a probably for me a right and a wrong way to do it. So the wrong way is I used to, as I was making dinner, have a glass of wine or a whiskey, which is great. And then I'd have a second one and then I would, my brain would start to shut off. And that, that works fine. It works fine, but it, long-term, it's just not a great, great solution. Um, I do think every once in a while it's fine. But um, what I started learning, so there's a couple things. I am not a meditator. I cannot. I just have never been able to do it. I can't. It doesn't help And for me personally. 
but I hear that it helps for most people. And so if you have not tried meditation, there's some really amazing iOS apps, calm.com. And there, I mean, you can't throw a rock without finding one. I, I highly recommend it. And I, I think for most people, that is actually probably the answer is to do a five-minute meditation in the morning and a five-minute meditation in the evening. I think the other thing is to shut off all notifications and either to put the phone in the other room and to let your team know, like even as the boss, so to speak, like I will often say, hey, between five and eight, I just, I'm not going to respond, right? And if you really need me, you need to text this number or, you know, you need to, to do whatever. So I think notifications are often that. I think the last thing that I've done is I have a notebook around that I will bring in when I'm cooking dinner, doing dishes or walking around, I will keep it with me again, because I don't necessarily want my phone near me. And when I think of something like, oh, I forgot to send that email today, I go in the notebook and I write, you need to send that email. Or if I, oh, I forgot to do whatever, or tomorrow morning, the first thing I'm going to, then I go in there and, and write it down because open loops are what keeps you cycling, right? Negative, the negative cycle of like, oh, I need to remember. Oh, I need to remember. I'm going to forget. I'm going to forget. But if you write it down anywhere, you just capture it, much like the getting things done approach. That always helps me chill out. Oh, and the last thing I'll throw in is I used to only listen to business books and business podcasts, and I've stopped doing that about five years ago. And now I listen to Dungeons and Dragons and, you know, just whatever. Like, try to have, it's hard, but try to have some kind of hobby that allows you to shut down. Listen to fiction. Again, I, I'm taking my own advice here, and I struggle with that because to me it feels like wasted time. <laughs> it's the kind of person I am. But um, some type of thing to allow you to do that, to have a hobby. It's like, I'm going to sit down and read this graphic novel or listen to this audiobook about whatever, that really is a way to pull yourself, pull yourself out of work mode. I love that. Like you, I really struggle. I think lots of entrepreneurs find this, right? The sense of opportunity cost they have of everything they do often drives them to be very single-minded. And single-mindedness is an incredibly valuable skill. I'm not saying it's not. I've tried to gamify it for me by framing it as like developing the creative juices that are just a valuable skill to have in life as well, right? So just like you, you know, whether it's reading a, a fiction book or listening to some music or, you know, these sorts of things are absolutely part of kind of feeding and watering that, you know, the brain, right? In, in the kind of more uh, uh, neuroplastic sense, I suppose. Absolutely. Brilliant. So I suppose, what do your kids think about what you do? Do you know, do they know what you do? Your kids are a little bit older. I talked to my child, Evie, about what I do all the time, but she's 15 months old. So uh, I'm not absolutely sure she cares that much. Uh, but obviously, a little bit different for you. Yeah, I talked a lot to my kids, both my wife and I do being in this entrepreneurial circle. So I run a, a series of, of in-person events called MicroConf. It's for bootstrapped and mostly bootstrapped SaaS founders. And the kids have attended several of them, not, you know, uh, sat and watched every talk, but they'll sit in the back, especially when I'm on stage emceeing. They get badges now, like producers, Andrew, who runs it, will fill out badges for them with their names, you know, and their titles and such. And uh, they know that I'm more than just sitting in front of a computer. You know, they know that I run companies and now that I help fund and mentor and advise other SaaS companies. And while they don't truly understand, you know, it's hard to get your, when you're 10, it's hard to get your head around what SaaS is, right? But I tell them it's subscription software, it runs on the web and stuff. I want them to understand so that they have the opportunity, because I didn't have anyone around me that was an entrepreneur, anyone when I was a kid. And somehow I realized entrepreneurship was this ticket to, I wanted it to be the ticket to freedom and, and frankly, financial stability. Um, and I want my kids to understand that it is an option for them. You know, they can start a company if they want, or if they don't, one of them wants to be a veterinarian. It's like, great. So for you, it's going to be college. You're going to 
have to get a PhD and all that stuff. And that's great. But the other ones, because entrepreneurship, I feel much like writing software, like coding, entrepreneurship is a skill that will benefit you almost no matter what you do. You know, that being an entrepreneurial in a big company, being entrepreneurial, if you even work at a vet's office, run your own vets, you know, vet clinic, or being an entrepreneurial writer, like let's say I want to be an author, one of my kids wants to be an author and a musician or whatever, knowing how to then market yourself, knowing how to think about it as an entrepreneur and not just the creative, not just the artist, it's an invaluable skill that so many people don't have. What a great perspective that is. You know, the fact that actually it's really, in any case, a mindset, right? That actually you can think a little bit about being entrepreneurial in any role. And that's really absolutely true, isn't it? Because you learn, uh, as you touched on there, one of the biggest things about being entrepreneur is that you have to learn 50 jobs in an incredibly short amount of time, right? And actually, you know, I came from the product side with no business experience. This was the biggest shock to my system. It was like, oh boy, I'm in charge of the HR policy this time. Yeah, it ain't going to get done unless I do that, right? And I also got to wash the dishcloth at the end of the day because none of my engineers take those home. I got to do that. But actually having that right mindset, irrespective of whether you're in one, one role, actually can really help you turbocharge your career. I, I like that point you've made of folks who, who haven't been an entrepreneur don't realize that you have to learn so many skills so quickly. And if you don't, I mean, I, you know, I've known successful entrepreneurs and I've known failed entrepreneurs who, who just aren't quite able to get it done and they go back to full-time job, which is fine. But there's several factors that play into it, obviously. It's not just one thing, but something I see pretty often is people who don't want to learn new skills or don't want to do things they maybe don't want to do. Like, oh, I don't want to do sales. I don't really want to do marketing. I don't like writing copy. And it's like, well, I mean, I guess if you have infinite budget, you can just hire people to do those. But especially in the early days, you're typically capital and human constrained, hour constrained. And you just have to sometimes hack things out that you're not great at or you don't want to do just to get to that next step. Has that influenced the way you've raised your children? Again, I think one of the greatest skills anyone can have is being able to, with discipline, push through doing something they don't like, but is incredibly valuable. Yeah, I have really tried to imbue that on them because when, when I was younger, we had we lived out in the country and we didn't have great TV reception. We had like one channel. And so to make money, because when I wanted to buy comic books or batteries for my Walkman or whatever, I'm dating my age, but I I got paid up a dollar an hour to to use a weed whacker, you know, which is like an electric thing that whacks weeds and you carry it around. And I remember I got I raised to two bucks an hour, and I was like, that's amazing. I um, and it was super hot, and I didn't want to do any of it, but I wanted the money. You know what I mean? I wanted something. I wanted the end result, and so I was willing to go out there and sweat it out. And it taught me amazing lessons, doing jobs that I didn't want to do. Hey, it made me realize long-term, I don't want to be doing this when I'm 40. You know, I also played sports. Sometimes you just have to do things that are hard that you don't want to do such that you can reap the rewards later. I am desperately trying to teach my kids that sometimes successfully and sometimes not. I think the thing with our kids is none of them are interested in competitive sports, which has been a challenge, not because I wanted them to be, but I wanted them to do something hard and do it consistently for a reward that was down the line. And so they play instruments. So each of them, we have a, a pianist and a cellist and a violinist, and these are hard instruments to play. So I play the guitar, which compared to a classical uh, instrument without frets, is it's like easy mode. And so, you know, they've been playing, depending on the kid, you know, five to eight years. And it's hard, and they practice every day, and they don't like it. But you know what? They're really good at it. And they're very proud that they're really good at it. So hopefully that that's their weed whacking for a dollar an hour lesson. 
Great stuff. So, Rob, we're nearly kind of wrapping up here, but I wanted to take you to the question that I like to ask every guest, which is what's the biggest lesson in entrepreneurship that you've learned that you'd like to pass on to your kids? Well, we've already touched on one, which is you're going to have to do hard things you don't like, and it's going to be worth it. And then another one is you're going to have to learn new things. It's a growth mindset versus fixed mindset, right? You're going to have to learn new things quickly. Even if you're not an entrepreneur, just in life, you'll do better off if you learn things quickly. So those aside, the third one is... um, that you're probably going to have to chart your own path. That the path, that the script that society has is that you're going to go to high school and then college and then maybe maybe get a master's or maybe go work a job, an entry-level job, and you're going to climb the ranks and you're going to be a middleman. There's a script, right, of what you do, depending on your family and where you come from. And I believe that for most people, that script will not lead to happiness and that you need to ask yourself, chart your own path, ask yourself, really, what do I want to do? And then figure out if it's viable and how to get there. So I have tattoos. My, my left arm is mostly fully covered. And that one of the first tattoos I got is up on my shoulder. And it's almost like a map. It's got, you know, longitude, latitude lines. And then it's got a big picture of, of a landmass. It's kind of like Italy. And at the edge of that map, there's a hand with a pen that is drawing. And the symbolism here, there was a couple things in it. One is it was Italy. And that was the first place I ever took my family on a trip with money I'd made as a startup founder. So there's a, there's a very deep tie to that country. But the symbolism of the hand and is that the map ends and now I have to draw my own map. And I realized at a certain point when I left full-time employment and I had this app making, it was making seven or 8,000 a month. And I was like, I'm quitting my job and I'm going to work here. Or, you know, I'm going to work on my own stuff. I looked around and I was like, there's no one to guide me anymore. There is no map. There is no script for what I'm about to do. And that's that lesson I want to teach the kids is it's okay that there's no script. You know, you can just push it forward and, as long as you're being sensible, <laughs> you know, and, and thinking a little bit in the long term, you're going to have to chart your own course. That's fantastic. I think the idea that is pushed at school, that the path of life is linear, is very quickly disproved <laughs> in almost all life circumstances, right? And the sooner people learn that, the better. I heard a really, really great quote. I think it was Sam Altman who talked about like the different stages of the video game of life, right? Where you first, most people think that they need to earn money. And then after that, they think a little bit about power. And then they think about status and then impact. And ultimately they realize that you only have yourself and you need to try and be the best version of yourself, right? And it speaks to me a little bit about what you're saying about that landmass kind of, you have to go find it, whatever it is, you've got to go find it. And it's only your eyes that see where what it is. So the only thing that you can really control is you. And often it's hard. Often you don't know for sure, especially when you're 20, you know, or I'll speak for myself. When I was 18, 20, 22, I didn't really know. And I was just kind of flailing around. But as I got older and did more things, I started being, oh, this is actually what I enjoy and don't enjoy. And longer term, I need to optimize for these things, right? I think getting to know yourself is a huge step in this process. Startup shout outs. Well, Rob, that was absolutely fantastic. Before we wrap up, uh, I'd like to ask give, give you the chance to um, give your startup shout out. So startup shout outs is a feature where we shine a light on organizations that we've worked with in the startup space that we really admire. Could you pick an organization and tell us a little bit about it? Yeah, absolutely. 
one organization I really admire is called Diversify Tech, and it's at diversifytech.co. It's a collection of resources for underrepresented folks in tech. There's a job board. If you're hunting for jobs, there's links to scholarships, all types of stuff. I have spoken with the founder multiple times. We are actually sponsors of Diversify Tech, and it's something that you know over time all of us need to, I think, be focusing on on making tech more diverse. Fantastic. Great to hear institutions helping do that sort of thing. You know, we're all trying to do it. And I think as an industry, we all reflect on the fact that we're not doing a good enough job. So fantastic to hear that. Great. So Rob, thank you so much for joining us on this podcast. A fantastic mix of your entrepreneurial uh, and fatherhood experiences for us today. Before we go, uh, is there anything else you'd like to shout out? You know, if folks, folks are obviously listening to this podcast. So if you're looking for another one and want to hear me talk about this kind of stuff, also more marketing. And I do some interviews. I do a lot of uh, solo episodes where I'm just talking about my philosophies and that kind of stuff. I podcast every week at Startups for the Rest of Us. And you can find it in any, wherever greater podcasts are sold. Brilliant. Rob, thanks again. Great to have you on the show. Absolutely. It's my pleasure. Many thanks to today's guest. You'll find links to them and their work in the show notes. To join our community of parent founders, head over to the Startup Dance Facebook group. 